in the most recent edition of the Princeton Review, was ranked seventh in the nation for schools with the happiest students. Seventh in the nation for schools with the happiest students. Now, whether they move up a few spots or down a few spots on that list remains to be seen after tomorrow night's national championship game. But right now, they're seventh in the nation, schools with the happiest students. Our nation's Declaration of Independence proclaims to us that the pursuit of happiness is one of our inalienable rights. Now, we just wished each other a happy new year, and many of us make resolutions in order to achieve that very thing. But what is happiness? Where is true happiness found? In what does true happiness consist? And that's a question that Psalm 1 deals with. Psalm 1 opens, blessed is the man. Man is representative, man or woman, person. Blessed is the man. And this Hebrew word for blessed, this particular word essentially means happy. Happiness, well-being, flourishing. So how does Psalm 1 go on to define happiness for us? Where is true happiness found? Happy are they who, and surprisingly, it's negative, walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. True happiness, Psalm 1, starts to define for us negatively. And that's counterintuitive. We tend to think that finding true happiness means saying yes to what we want. But true happiness here begins by saying no. What does true happiness say no to? Let's look at these briefly. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now we hear that word wicked and we think violence, oppression, blatant, flagrant evil. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. The counsel of the wicked doesn't just mean flagrant wickedness or evil. It could be the counsel of a friend, of a good friend, who's well-intentioned, who, who means well, but doesn't have your best interests in mind because they don't share your faith. Second, no to the world's ambitions. Let's look at this one. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Again, the way of sinners, it doesn't necessarily have to mean flagrant evil. The way of sinners could be good things becoming all-consuming things. The way of sinners could be just following the world's ambitions and getting caught up in all that, as we so easily do. Money, material possessions, uh, the world of achievement, the world of sports, entertainment, romantic conquest, whatever it may be, a good thing that's become all-consuming, the way of sinners. So happiness says no to the world's advice, the counsel, no to the world's ambitions, the way of sinners, and then no to the world's attitudes, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That word in the Hebrew, that seat, that just means who you belong to. The people that you belong to, the seat of the scoffers. Uh, the scoffer is the cynic, the mocker, the one, to borrow praise from C.S. Lewis, who can see through everything. You see through people's motivations. Ah, everybody's motivations, they're impure, they're corrupt. See through institutions, the church, government, family, nah, they're just self-interested. And the scoffer ultimately is one who claims he can see through the God of the Bible. God of the Bible, good, loving, just, no, evil, 
mood swings, lame at best, the scoffer, someone who can see through everything. And the point of these the psalm is making is, is that it's just important who you surround yourself with. It's important who you belong to. Whose counsel are you listening to? Who is it that inspires your ambitions? Who is it that your attitudes are being shaped by? So if true happiness is to say no to these things of the world, what does true happiness say yes to? Verse two, happiness is defined positively here. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Law in the Bible can mean specific commands, specific instructions, but it can also, more broadly as it does here, just mean teaching, instruction. So law here just means the whole word of God, the whole scriptures. Psalm 1 is is the introduction to the book of Psalms, and it's really a way that we can enter into not just the Psalms, but the whole Bible. Psalm 1 tells us how we're to approach all of God's word, all of the scriptures. It's the doorway by which we enter into the word of God. And how are we to approach God's word? His delight is in the law of the Lord. Delight in the word of God. Think of Psalm 19, which flushes out for us what it means to delight in the law of the Lord and the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, I can identify with with you if you say, authority? Definitely. Standard? Rule? Yes. Right here. Guidance? Sometimes, most of the time. Sure, guidance, yeah. Delight? Delight in the word of God? Happiness in the word of God? Has the word of God ever been money in your bank? Has the word of God ever been like sweet honey on your tongue? How does the word of God become delightful? Well, one answer is found here in Psalm 1, if you look. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Those who delight in God's word are going to want to meditate on it, but the reverse is also true. Those who meditate on the law of God, it becomes their delight. So today's world of videos, news feeds, smartphones, I'm right there in it, trust me. I'm not good at it, but no, I... I use it. In this world, I think it's safe to say that meditation is probably a lost art. And the interest in in meditation today is usually in the form of Eastern meditation, which focuses primarily on posture and and sounds and rhythms. And so the focus is, is more on emptying your mind. But meditation in the Bible, Christian meditation, is focused on words. And so the emphasis is on filling your mind with the truth of God. To meditate means to groan over the word of God. 
Not only to read and study the Bible and listen to sermons, though we should do that, we need good teachers, we need good resources to help us understand the Bible rightly. We need to start there, but it doesn't end there. To meditate is to just set up camp in the Word of God, to set up camp with a word or a phrase or a passage and just hang out there for a while. Dig down deep for the gold. It's to, to take a truth from the Bible, a word or a phrase or a passage, and just to put it on your tongue and taste it a while until you, you can taste its sweetness. It's meditation that brings that delight in the word of God that, that we so often long for but, but do not find. To dig down deep into what the word teaches you about God, about what he's like. And if he really is like that, what difference does it make for me? Until it hits you like gold, the weight of him. Until the sweetness of him hits your tongue and moves you to praise and worship and tears. Archie mentioned Good News Club earlier. And in Good News Club, we say that... Um, the, in the Bible, God talks to us in the Bible, and we talk to God in prayer. So God speaks to us in the Bible, and then we speak to God in prayer. But there's a bridge in between those. It's meditation. It's meditating, groaning over, asking questions of God's word, camping out there for a while, putting it on your tongue that fuels that praise in response to God's word. There's a personal aspect primarily to meditation, but I think there's a corporate aspect to meditation too. When we gather together, music, singing, why do we sing? Why do we play music? Why not just read the words straight out of the Bible? Well, singing has a meditative quality to it. The words stay with us. The repetition helps uh, bring it into our hearts and minds. It connects with our emotions. It, it impresses truth on our hearts. It's a form of meditation. Do we just come and we listen to sermons Or do we, as our shorter catechism says, attend to the word with diligence, preparation, prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts so that we can then practice it in our lives. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. So I think this can mean morning and evening, but I also think it's referring to good seasons and bad seasons. Good times and bad times. To go and to meditate on the word of God, it's very difficult in the first place, as I've found. It's, it's hard it's to keep your mind from wandering to all these different places. But it's especially hard if you're in a difficult time, in a difficult season, and you don't even want to go there in the first place. But that's when you need to go there more than ever before. If you're listening this morning, you're saying, I've tasted that delight before, I've had the weight of God and his glory hit me like gold. I've had little tastes of that. I want more of it, but I'm just not feeling it. It's nighttime, not the daytime. That's when you need it more than ever before. That's when you got to keep digging. That's when you got to keep tasting it until it finally hits you and breaks through. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. I've drawn from metaphors from Psalm 19, but there's a metaphor in this Psalm too for meditation. It's in verse three, if you'll look there. He is like a tree planted by streams of water 
that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So God has planted his people in the life-giving waters of his word. And so meditation is sinking your roots deep into those waters, drawing your life, drawing your nourishment from the word of God. And then what happens? What's the result? What happens when we're delighting in the law of the Lord as we meditate on it day and night, when we're sinking our roots deep into the waters of the word? Well, first, you see in verse 3, there's spiritual growth. The tree yields its fruit in season. Think about Galatians chapter 5, which talks about the, the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are things that, that bring benefit not only to yourself, but to other people as well. It brings benefit and enjoyment to the people in your life. That's what it means when the psalm says to prosper. It's not talking about prospering materially or, or only personally. It's, it's talking about fruitfulness for the benefit and prosperity and enjoyment of other people around you, people in your life. There's spiritual growth. And then secondly, the result there's spiritual stability. There's not only growth, but stability. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. So the psalm's very realistic about the Christian life. You're not always going to have seasons of tremendous growth and fruitfulness and, and people are enjoying you and benefiting from your ministry to them. You're, you're not always going to have that. There's going to be times that are dry. There's going to be times when it's difficult. There's going to be times when you're not feeling it, when you're not seeing it. But if your roots are deep into the waters of God's word, there's stability. Because look, the leaf does not wither. It may not be a season of fruitfulness. It may not be a season of growth. But the leaf hasn't withered. There's still life. There's still vitality. There's still health. Because your roots are deep into the waters of God's word. And to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, we've got to do that so that when those seasons come, we've got roots. And the seasons of life don't toss us around. There's spiritual growth, there's spiritual stability, and you see that contrasted in verse 4. The emphasis in the text in the Hebrew, that the first words are not so. Just making a drastic contrast. Look. The way of the righteous, to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, their spiritual growth, their spiritual stability, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So when the farmer is threshing his grain, he's throwing the, the grain up into the air, and then the, the wind blows away the chaff, the husks that are lighter than the kernels that you, that you want to eat. So there's a contrast, the stability of the tree planted by the streams of water, chaff that the wind blows away. No stability, no fruitfulness. Derek Kidner is a wonderful commentator on the Psalms, and he says, the wicked here are described as rootless, weightless, worthless, useless. Think about what we said earlier. Think about the world's advice. It's just going to lead to ruin. The world's ambitions are for things that are going to fade away. They're not going to last forever. The world's attitudes of cynicism, there's no hope. It leads only to misery. So without those deep roots, you'll just be carried away by the changing winds of life. And in verses 5 through 6, we see these two different ways of life, these two different roads of life end in two very different places. 
verses five and six, if you'll look there. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two different roads, two very different destinations. Uh, To be known by God uh, doesn't mean just that God knows you in an intellectual way. It doesn't mean that God just acknowledges that you're there. To be known by God means that he's happy in you. So the psalm is saying true happiness is found in God alone, but it's also saying that for his people, God himself finds his true happiness in you. He's happy to have you with him if you belong to him. To be known by God, to be welcomed into the congregation, the assembly of God's people. But by contrast, the way of the wicked will perish. Disaster, destruction for all eternity. So where is true happiness found? Surrounding yourself with God's people, delighting in God's word, and being known by God himself. By way of application, now that we've walked through the psalm, in an effort to encourage you personally to meditate on the law of God, to make the the word of God your delight, and to help us together as a congregation to meditate on the law of God, to make it our delight, uh, particularly in the psalms. In 2019, this new year, in our corporate worship services, we're going to be very, very, very intentional about reading, reflecting, singing the psalms and hymns based on the psalms, to sink our roots deep into the psalms so we can have that spiritual growth and fruitfulness and stability together. So why the psalms? Why sink our roots deep into the Psalms when we're here together? What do the Psalms have to offer us? I'm just going to give you four reasons. There are many more, but four reasons today. First, why the Psalms? The Psalms enable us to encounter God as he really is. So you want to have a relationship with somebody. You want somebody to have a friendship with you, to, to, have, you know, to, to get to know somebody. You want that person to get to know you and think of you as you really are. Right? If I think of John Spate as a 40-year-old man with blonde hair and I treat him that way, are are me and John Spate going to get along very well? Probably not. To have a a real relationship with somebody, to have a friendship with somebody, to get to know somebody, you've got to think of them and treat them as they really are, and the same is true of God. We can't say, I like to think of God as this or think of God as that. The real issue is, what is God really like? And the Psalms give us this incredible picture of God in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. The Psalms enable us to encounter God as he really is. So in the Psalms, we have a God who's awesome in his love and compassion and terrifying in his wrath. We have a God who rules over all, who's sovereign, who controls absolutely everything in the universe, who's high above us, but then we have a God who intimately cares for his creation, is involved in all the details of everyday life. We have a God who forgives sin, he's merciful, and a God who holds evil accountable. 
We have a creator, we have a savior, we have a rock, we have a redeemer, we have a king, a lord, a shepherd, a judge, all in the Psalms. So if we're to know and worship God as he really is and not just as we like him to be, we need the full picture of God given to us in the Psalms and in all of God's word. Why the Psalms? Secondly, the Psalms enable us to express ourselves as we really are. The Psalms enable us to express ourselves as we really are. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And I'll let him tell us what he means by that. There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here in the Psalms represented as in a mirror. The Holy Spirit is here in the Psalms drawn to light all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all of the distracting emotions with which we are wont to be agitated. How to speak to God, lay open all of our thoughts and affections, even in the midst of doubts, fears, and apprehensions. Let us put forth our efforts in prayer until we experience some consolation which may calm and bring contentment to our minds. You see what he's saying? He's saying the Psalms have every human emotion that you can possibly think of. Not only do they, do they have every emotion, but they show us how we can go to God with all of our emotions. How we can go to God in fears, in doubts, in perplexities. And not just when we're joyful and in times of praise. We need the Psalms to help us express ourselves to God as we really are in all the emotional states that we find in, in this life. Thirdly, the Psalms enable us to identify with others as they really are. We encounter God as he really is, we express ourselves as we really are, and we can identify with others where they really are. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, when we gather together in the congregation, uh, we're all coming from those different places emotionally, depending on the day. For a lot of us, they're probably all kind of jumbled and mixed in together, and we can't even understand what they are. But some of us come in joy, others are in sorrow. Some come confident and trusting, some are doubting and perplexed. Some are at peace, some are agitated. Some are rejoicing, others are grieving. So how do we encounter God and worship together when we're at, at all those different places emotionally? We have it in the Psalms. The Psalms help us to enter into worship and identify with one another and encourage one another and sympathize with one another. Because in the Psalms we have hymns of praise. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Great song for someone who's coming in joyful and excited and ready to praise, but then we have, how long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? We need both of those. We have confidence. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's the creator. He's God. He's on my side. I can do anything. And then we have, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. We need the Psalms to help us all enter into worship together, to identify with one another, to remember one another, to think about one another, to encourage and sympathize with one another. The Psalms can help us do that. Not only to identify with each other here, but also all around the world. Archie's mentioned it today. He mentions it almost every Sunday. 
our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who for the sake of Christ are being persecuted around the world. And Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3 tells us to remember them as if we were there with them. And Archie rightly points out, how in the world do we begin to do that? To remember them as if we were there with them? One way we can do that is through the Psalms. Because if you begin reading through the Psalms, there are a lot of things in there that make you a little uncomfortable, (laughs) that are pretty unsettling. So, Psalm 10, for instance, I just flipped through and found one yesterday. Psalm 10, we have, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account until you find none. Well, that's, that's kind of unsettling. Like, those, that's one of those things you just read on to the next psalm. <laughs> Seems like a stretch, doesn't it? But if you're in China... And the police have barricaded the doors of your church and they've raided your children's Sunday school class and they've taken you off to prison and ransacked your home. Arise, O Lord. That's not as much of a stretch anymore, is it? The Psalms, with their cries for for God to to rescue his people, their cries to, to bring justice to the poor and the oppressed, their cries for him to take action, The Psalms can help us pray those on behalf of our brothers and sisters all around the world, that God would be their refuge in a time of oppression. So the Psalms help us encounter God as he really is. They help us express ourselves as we really are. They help us identify with others as they are. And then lastly, the Psalms help us encounter God's son, Jesus Christ, as he really is. The Enlightenment period saw the elevation of human reason over divine revelation for ultimate authority. And so the Enlightenment gave birth to a movement that's known as the quest for the historical Jesus. The quest for the historical Jesus. So this quest, these scholars of the Enlightenment who are elevating human reason over divine revelation, they say, we want to find out who the real Jesus is. You've probably seen that on the magazines as you go through the grocery store. You see, who's the real Jesus? Or, or let's find out about Jesus from Time Magazine or Life Magazine. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but these scholars, they said, you know, we want to find out who the real Jesus is. But what they did was they were cynical about the place where we have the most abundant and reliable witness to the historical Jesus, the New Testament. They said, no, we're gonna be pretty cynical about that and try to find it from other places. And so what ends up happening is every one of these scholars in an attempt to find the historical Jesus, they they inevitably have to just pick and choose which parts of the New Testament they like. And not surprisingly, what happens is they fashion the real Jesus who happens to look a lot like the scholar and a lot like the time that he lived in. And this is not just a scholarly problem. We, we say things like, I like to think of Jesus as this, or there's no way Jesus really could have taught that or done that. But again, like we said before, The issue is not who you think of Jesus as, but who Jesus really is. And if you start here, 
inevitably you're going to do the same thing as the scholars. You're just going to pick and choose which parts you like better. But is that the real Jesus? Is that the historical Jesus? How do we know? What's the only reliable place to know who the real Jesus is? We have to go to the Bible. We have to go back to this being our authority and not ourselves. If we don't, we just end up fashioning Jesus in our own image. And we need to be clear about this. We need to be confident in this. We need to not be ashamed of this. Recently, a very uh, prominent evangelical pastor and leader uh, has recently said that, that if Christians are going to reach people today, we need to get the spotlight off of the Bible and onto the resurrection. So get the spotlight off the Bible and on to the resurrection. I don't doubt his intentions. I don't doubt that he actually is reaching people. But I think it's worth noting that that's the exact opposite approach that Jesus himself took. Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Jesus, after his resurrection, is walking on a road to a city called Emmaus with two of his disciples, and the disciples are despondent. They're sad because Jesus has been crucified, and they were followers of him, and they think the movement is done. It's over for Jesus and for his followers, and Again, the resurrected Jesus is the one walking with them, and they don't recognize him. If there ever was a time to take the spotlight off the Bible and put it on the resurrection, that was it. (laughs) You got two people walking with the resurrected Jesus in the flesh, and they don't recognize him. So, what did he do? Hey, look, you dummies. I'm right here in front of you. Open your eyes. It's me. He could have done that. I think most of us in in his place would have done that. I'm right here in front of you. He didn't do that. What did he do? Again, he's standing right in front of them in the flesh, and what does he do? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's standing with them right there in the flesh and he wants them to see who he is and what does he do? He he takes them on a Bible study through the Old Testament. If there ever was a time to take the spotlight off the Bible and onto Jesus, it was then, but Jesus goes to the Bible. He says, the Old Testament, the scriptures, that's how you recognize who I am. And what does the text say? It says their hearts burned within them. Their hearts burned within them. Man, I want that. Do you want the weight of him to hit you like gold? Do you want to taste him like honey on your tongue? Do you want to find your life and nourishment and strength from him? Do you want your heart to burn within you? The Bible is the spotlight that enables us to see the crucified and resurrected Jesus as he is. Meditating on the word of God day and night. And Jesus goes on to say in that same chapter, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So why the Psalms? Why sink our roots deep into the Psalms together and hopefully personally as well? Because the Psalms are a spotlight on Jesus. The Psalms everywhere show us the sufferings and the glories of Jesus. Think about Psalm 1. Is Jesus not the man of Psalm 1? He said no to every worldly ambition, every temptation. 
As he was scoffed at, as he was mocked, as he was ridiculed, he refused to repay in kind. His delight was in the law of the Lord. All through his earthly ministry in every situation, he's always quoting the scriptures and showing how the scriptures are fulfilled in him. His roots were sunk deep into the waters of God's word in every moment of every day. His, his money, his honey, his life was to do the will of his father, and he did so perfectly. but it was the will of the Father that he should go to the cross in our place. And on the cross, he, instead of us, was uprooted. He was driven away like chaff in the wind. The righteous one, the righteous one, stood in the way of sinners and perished in our place so that sinners, like all of us, could be welcomed in the congregation of the righteous and be known by God himself to have the Lord himself happy in us and for us to find our happiness in him. And to delight in the law of the Lord, that's to delight in Jesus himself, the word of God. So this new year, 2019, together in our services, and to encourage you to do it personally, let's sink our roots deep into the Psalms. Let's sink our roots deep into all of God's word. And let's sink our roots deep into Jesus himself. Find our life and strength and joy and, yes, happiness in him. Let's pray.